News Group and Emerald One, where we celebrate the unique brilliance of today's leaders and share their greatest lessons with you in just about 20 minutes. Hi, I'm Laverne Council, CEO of Emerald One, and joining me today is Robert McDonald, AKA Bob. Bob has an incredible bio, and by the way, he is an incredible person. An Army veteran who served with the 82nd Airborne and was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal. Bob graduated in the top 2% of his West Point class. He earned his MBA from the University of Utah, and he went on to serve as the Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Procter & Gamble for 33 years. After leaving Procter & Gamble, President Obama selected Bob to head the Department of Veteran Affairs, where I had the really privileged opportunity to work with him as Assistant Secretary and CIO for the VA. Bob, this is the short version of your bio. What I really want people to understand is that you're probably one of the most humble leaders that I've ever met. You have an incredible number of awards, you sit on many boards, and you have a ton of honors in your name, but we all know you rarely talk about them. You spend a lot of time, however, talking about the idea of values-based leadership, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So Bob, tell me about it. What does values-based leadership mean to you, and why is this so important? Well, first of all, Laverne, it's, it's great to be with you, and thank you for the leadership you provided the Department of Veterans Affairs when, when we served together. Uh, you transformed the IT organization, and I will be forever grateful to you for that. Um, Values-based leadership to me is, is the fundamental foundation of any organization. If you think of a high-performance organization, it always starts with the purpose of the organization. You build on that with what are the values, you know, what are the things that cause people to behave a certain way? And then does that organization have passionate leadership? Do they have sound strategies? Do they have robust systems? Do they have a high performance culture? Um, and that leads to a high performance organization. But if you don't have those foundational values right, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the problem, uh, as you know, when you and I got to the VA. So, so when you think about this, and especially when you think about values-based leadership on a daily basis, especially in corporate environments, you know, you, you can only control so much. And you know there's a base level of capabilities you have to know and have to have. But how does this really play out? How have you seen it when it's worked well and when it hasn't? Mm. Let's talk first about what we found when we got to the VA. Um, if you remember in the spring of uh, 2014, uh, there were some veterans waiting for care in Phoenix that weren't getting the care that they needed and the time they needed it. And what was going on was people were, people, employees were cooking the books and cooking the books, meaning that uh, their guideline was to give people to get veterans in for care within 14 days. But often they wouldn't note down the need for an appointment until 14 days from the time they could give it. Mm -hmm. cook, cooking the books. And as we later discovered, that was going on in other VA sites, not just in Phoenix. And the issue was uh, an objective had been set 14 days that was unachievable. The organization was not capable of achieving it. 
So certainly we had to build that capability, but the number one issue that we had to address from the very beginning was people were violating the values because one of the values was integrity, integrity. And, uh, and, and how can you have employees uh, violate a fundamental value? So what we had to do um, is go in and uh, reassess where we were versus those values, train those values, and training values is a continuous exercise. The values were an acronym that stood for I care, I being integrity. Train those values over and over and over again uh, with scenarios so that it provides that robust foundation uh, for a high performance organization. And, and so, you know, when you think about that, definitely sitting in a government environment, but you also led one of the largest companies in the world in Procter & Gamble. Um, that was a conglomerate of other products and brands from, from everywhere. And I can remember you talking about your time in Japan and, and trying to create a leadership culture there and addressing some issues. Talk to me a little bit about when you've had to have values-based leadership and, and engage in a corporate environment like that, especially when you're crossing um, cultural divides and cultural yeah, norms. I think you make a great uh, insightful point there. Uh, a little bit of history. When I joined the company in 1980, about a third of our business was outside the United States. When I retired from the company in 2013, two-thirds of our business was outside the United States. So as we were globalizing, which began in the early 1980s, the mid-1980s, uh, and then accelerated with the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, also the leadership of Deng Xiaoping in China about 1989, 1990, uh, we really discovered that uh, we had values, uh, but we had to communicate those uh, so they would be operable in different cultures. You know, in the old days of Procter & Gamble, uh, when one of my predecessors was a fellow named John Smale, who I deeply admire and love, um, they would communicate values by all the leaders getting together for lunch in Cincinnati in our corporate headquarters. Well, you can't do that if you're in 200 countries around the world. So in the 1980s, we realized we had to write those values down. And we, we developed a team. I wasn't part of it at the time. I had just joined the company. But a bunch of our leaders under the leadership of John Pepper, another one of our former CEOs, uh, and John Smale, worked together writing them down. And, uh, and then as I went to different geographies, uh, I had to work to translate them into the local culture or language. Uh, it, that was the challenge. I mean, when you go to Japan, um, I don't speak Japanese well. I took lessons an hour and 20 days, an hour and 20 minutes a day for uh, six days a week for six years. Um, you know, how do Japanese people interpret those values? For example, one of the values in uh, Procter & Gamble is leadership. Uh, we expect people to take initiative, to be leaders, uh, no matter their position, no matter where they stay in the hierarchy. And there is no word in the Japanese language uh, for leadership. Uh, there, in, Jap in Japanese, you have three different alphabets. One is called hiragana, that's for Japanese words. One is called katakana, that's for foreign words. The third is Chinese characters called kanji. 
And there is no word in hiragana for leadership. So it's it literally, they don't translate the word. They just take the word and, and write it phonetically. So we had to spend a lot of time talking about, well, what does leadership look like in a Japanese context? And I even had to go out and try to find good examples of Japanese leaders and biographies of their leadership in order to communicate that value to the organization. That is very telling, Bob, because one of the things that we believe in Emerald One is leaders oftentimes have to want the culture that they, they say. They, they want the culture they envision, so they say, this is our culture. But in reality, having the insight that you had to understand, wait a minute, this might not be translating. We need to do some work to make sure it translates, and when it does, it means what we want it to mean is very important as a leader. And well, so, I, I, again, I think you're making an incredibly insightful comment. I think as leaders, we don't work hard enough, long enough on culture. And culture may be the most important part of developing a high-performance organization. You did that when you led the IT department at VA. I can remember many times coming to your team meetings and I could see you working on the culture. Uh, we had to do that. You, you remember how we juxtaposed the two scenarios in the VA in order to communicate what culture we wanted. The, the scenario where the veteran drives to the Spokane, Washington uh, community-based outpatient clinic, calls the desk clerk to help them get into the building because they were disabled, and the desk clerk says, I'm sorry, you have to call 911. The individual does that. And, you know, we have a fire truck and, a, and an emergency medical group show up. Contrast that with the White River Junction, Vermont situation where a nurse, a uh, terrific nurse, uh, has her veteran not show up for an appointment. Uh, she, make a long story short, goes out, they break down the door of his house and they save his life because he's wedged between two pieces of furniture. How do we get the culture of the organization to cause people to have enough trust in their leadership, enough trust in the values of the organization, that they will take initiative. And if the initiative goes awry, break down the door and the guy's drinking a cup of coffee, the leaders have the back of the people who took initiative, as long as it was consistent with the purpose and values of the company. Yeah. Culture's and, and, everything. It, it, it really is. And, and, you know, we, people often talk about, well, we have a change now, let's manage it but you don't really manage change, you manage people, right? And, right. And, and you share and you build trust and culture with people. And one of the things I always remember you talking about, Bob, was the importance of our people, the importance of engaging with them, and also the importance of transparency. Because it's, very, it's, it's a lot easier for that nurse to do what she did when she saved that veteran, when she knew that was the value that the leadership all the way through the organization believed. She knew she was doing the right thing. It wasn't a right. question, right? Right. And, and so the concept of value-based leadership is really important, not just in um, what we do at work, but it's also important in what we do at home and also important at this time with COVID-19 and the quarantine. You know, when we think about it, we're all having to be leaders in very different ways dealing with this particular issue. So yeah, it's my, it's my experience that, that you really can't uh, separate the values uh, that you follow when you're in the office and the values you follow when you're outside the office. I don't know of a high-performance organization or leaders in a high-performance organization 
that can compartmentalize values across environments. So generally, people join companies where they're comfortable with the values. And it was always my point of view at the Procter & Gamble Company and at VA that to the degree we make those values more and more pervasive in people's personal lives and their work lives, we're going to be a better high-performance company. How can you care about people? How can you take Procter & Gamble? How can you make products that improve people's lives and then uh, go out of the office and uh, pollute the environment. You can't do that. I mean, it's just, it's that inconsistency, that incongruency would drive a person crazy. That is so important. And, and at the end of the day though, you and I have had other leaders that we, we've guided, that we worked with that have tried it. You know, that, that, that try to sort of have this duplicity in, in how they look at things. And great leaders just realize you can't do that. You've got to live it and you got to live it in all places where you stand. And so if your values are ones of integrity and transparency and accountability, this is sort of how you're going to be with all things. This embodies what's great about you, Bob. I, I have to say that. I mean, you know, your, your persona is not just a persona because of the roles you had. It's a persona because this is what you want to be. And so, yeah, but that, that makes me nervous. I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. I still have a lot to do. Life is a, is a book of many chapters, and some of my chapters aren't done yet. All leaders know that they're perfectly imperfect and exactly. that they are a constant set of work. No leader comes whole. And the point that, that I like to make there is that as people are thinking about what you've given us here in values-based leadership, that they understand that this comes in time and it comes because you wanted it. It comes because you understood the value of it and it comes because you know if you were a value-based leader, it was going to allow your people the freedom to fly. Yeah, and oftentimes it results in uh, behavior which is sacrificial, uh, self-sacrificial, uh, where you put the needs of the organization above yourself, what Jim Collins calls level five leadership, uh, what we in the Army would think of uh, as an officer in the Army, I let the soldiers eat before I did. Uh, we never ran out of food, but it's this important emblematic statement that their lives are more important than your own. And if you're going to be a values-based leadership, values-based leader, I think you really have to think about, uh, are you willing to make the commitment, the sacrifice that's necessary to do that? We are often curious about people, and, and you're a curious, I'm always curious about what you're up to, um, because you're pretty serious-minded, but I've seen you yuck it up and, and have a good time periodically, um, and, and, which is nice. Um, but I also have met members of your family, and they love you. Um, they, they really love you. And that comes through sacrifice as well. Um, but I'm dying to know, um, and it tells a lot about a person. I know you keep a really clean desk because you are always spick and span, but I got a question for you. What's on your desk right now? Oh, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I just read a book, uh, which I, which I really loved, which was, uh, by Eric Larson. Um, about the 1940-1941 and, uh, and Winston Churchill taking over the British government. And I thought it was unusually good. I, I've read so many books on Churchill, including Martin Gilbert's uh, biography, which is seminal. But this one was really good in, um, 
in demonstrating kind of the day-to-day thought process and day-to-day behaviors of Winston Churchill at a time where Adolf Hitler uh, had literally built the reviewing stands to celebrate their success over Great Britain's, uh, what he expected to be defeat. Um, And it just, again, reinforced in my mind the importance of of leadership and how Churchill uh, stuck to his values and, uh, and was a beacon of hope for the entire population. But interestingly, here's a guy who was uh, a great wartime leader, and then when the war was over, he was thrown out of power. And uh, it kind of gets to Stan McChrystal's point in his book on leadership recently, which is maybe it's the context uh, when one leader will be great versus uh, a context when their skills may not be as great. And all of us tend to have a leadership profile that may fit one context or another. Yeah. And you're a leader for that time. And you were the right leader at the right time. Perhaps. I can relate, I can relate to that. I think um, certain people have certain skills that lend themselves to disaster or lend themselves to maintain or lend themselves to great creativity. Um, and, and leaders, just like everyone else, have skills that differ based on that point in time. Well, and this is, this is why, again, uh, our friend Jim Collins writes, you got to get the right people in the bus, get them the right seats on the bus. I remember uh, one of the members of our leadership team, who I won't name, uh, wanted to come work on our team at the VA and wanted a particular job. Uh, they wanted to be the veteran experience officer. And I said, no, no, that's not the right job for you. I don't want you in that job. I want you to go do this job. Why? I, I won't mention it because I don't want to say the person's name. And, uh, and in the end, you know, uh, that person led that uh, capability and, and it rose to great fame and was a great contributor to our uh, progress. And in the end, they said, you know what, uh, maybe that was the right choice. And see, you never know. I mean, when Procter & Gamble came to me in 1989, said, we'd like you to go to Canada to, to lead our laundry business. I said, what did I do wrong? Because, you know, nobody was going international in those days uh, because the international business was so small. I didn't have the insight or the prescience that uh, the leadership of the company did that we wanted to develop a cadre of internationally trained managers for the future. And that's where the values base comes in, right? I, I've been exactly. in a situation that, you know, a leader – uh, I clearly remember I was at Dell and the leader wanted me to leave a job that I was doing quite well in. Um, and it was a big job and it was getting great and put me into an organization that was having a lot of problems. And I just thought it was punishment. Um, little did I know that everything I did beyond that job, when they moved me into that job, prepared me for everything I could do in the future. Well, that's why I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why uh, the value of trust is so important. You know, at Procter & Gamble, one of our values is trust. And uh, it was a, a value I learned a lot about in that we had to create intimate relationships with our consumers, with our employees. And when I got to the VA, what I discovered was uh, there was so much hierarchy, so much um, formality that it got in the way of uh, employees really knowing who we were as leaders and how do, we, how do we create an intimate relationship because in the end, we aren't gonna provide better service to our veterans if we don't provide better service, uh, quote unquote, 
to the employees. And intimacy is very, it's easy to, to hate a bureaucracy, uh, particularly a large one like the VA, 360,000 employees, where you can't put a face or a heart with the organization. But when you know who the person is leading the organization, they've made themselves vulnerable, they've made themselves transparent, they've created some kind of intimacy and relationship, then, um, then trust comes more easily. I, I think trust many times, Bob, is underrated and um, often misused. People will say, well, you can earn my trust. Um, I've always been a believer. I have, to, I have to give it to you for you to understand I value it. You know, I have right. to give you something of value to let you know that I, I value it. And, you know, one of the things that's so important as we come in, you know, we're in, we're in the midst of quarantine right now as we take this podcast and COVID-19. Um, as human beings are now distanced from each other and, and the way we physically showed that we cared or the way we physically engage with people, things will change. And sometimes distance brings distrust. Absolutely. Can you, can you just leave us with a little bit of wisdom about how running global organizations, you had to create trust even through distance, but even as we talk now, um, distance has pushed us into very different working styles and engagement. How can we maintain trust and how can we ensure it even when we have distance? Well, I think there are a number of things a leader can do to develop trust. One, one is obviously to um, create that intimacy. How do you create intimacy? Uh, you create accessibility. So for example, as you know, in the fall of 2014, uh, I gave out my cell phone number uh, nationally. Uh, the Washington Post kindly put it on the internet and uh, veterans knew that if, if they couldn't get their service from anyone else, they could call me and we, we dealt with that. So accessibility. Number two is the, is the whole issue that you've been just talking about today, which is about values. Uh, people like to work in organizations where outcomes are predictable. And it's the values of the organization, the strength of those values that leads to predictable outcomes. So if, if, if I was clear that I was going to lead from a certain set of values and, and somebody saw me and, and thought that I wasn't doing that, they could call me on it. I want them to call me on it. You know, yeah. and, and third was getting rid of the hierarchy. As you know, uh, when we got to the VA together, we got rid of the tent cards. We got rid of people standing up when we entered a room. We got rid of people valuing their own jobs based on whether or not they were in a meeting with us. Uh, we asked everybody to call us by our first name, uh, which is what we did at Procter & Gamble. We found that intimacy, uh, intimate relationships are on a first name basis. And, and that's different in many cultures, uh, but, but, but in the United States, it's certainly that way. Um, those are some of the things that you do to create, to create this intimacy. And, you know, I like to say that leadership is time inefficient. Uh, if, if you're going to be a great leader, you never worry about the time. If somebody shows up and they uh, shadow casts uh, out through your doorway on Friday afternoon at five o'clock right before you go home and they want to talk to you, uh, you stay there and you talk with them. You, you talk with them until the job is done. And you can't, uh, you can't measure leadership by a time clock. Bob, I can't thank you enough for being my guest. It's been nothing but an honor to spend this time with you and as always to learn from you. 
I'd also like to acknowledge the fact that I just heard that you're getting an article published in the Harvard Business Review, Trust in Leadership in the Federal Government, should be in the July issue. So congratulations for that. I look forward to reading it. I know it will be insightful and I know all our listeners will enjoy hearing more of your thoughts. You're the best example of a leader and someone that I am so lucky to count as a friend and a big brother. So thank you, Bob. And thank you all for joining Brilliant in 20, a joint production of Scoop News Group and Emerald One. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. So stay brilliant.